Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. We're really pleased that you've been able to join us for tonight's program. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And I find that intriguing because who had Paul been persecuting? Christians. Can you see how personally Jesus took this? Can you see how Christ feels with his people? Last week we were introduced to a very proud Jew. His name was Saul. He was extremely religious, but not really godly. The New Testament records his story and we discover that Saul has a life-transforming experience when he meets Jesus. Tonight is the second in a series on the life of the Apostle Paul and we meet him in the New Testament book of Acts on the road to Damascus. Let's join Dr Corbett as he continues exploring the life of Paul. If you've got your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 7, please. We're going to continue to look at Paul. And Paul, as we introduced, was someone who was very, very self-assured. Paul was someone who described himself as a, someone who kept the law of the Jews, the law of uh, Judaism. He, he says, blamelessly, perfectly. He said there was no fault that could be laid against him as far as keeping the law. And yet, we began to see that when he actually peels back that and lets us into his heart, and we get a picture of it as he retells the story in his epistle, which means a letter to the Romans, the church in Rome, he says in chapter 7, and most scholars and commentators see this as Paul describing what he was going through before he came to Christ. Before he came to Christ. And there's reasons for that if you look at the text. And in there he says, I am a wretched man. I am a wretched man. I am a man who deserves to die. I am a man who tries to do the right thing, but I just can't do the right thing. And you think, man, that's not what you were saying publicly. What you were saying publicly was that you were perfect without blemish, without fault. You were saying you were a true Hebrew of a true Hebrew. You were presenting yourself as someone who was incredibly religious. And now you're letting us know, you're letting us into your heart that that wasn't really the case. Behind the mask, behind the facade, which we're all pretty good at wearing, there was a deep emptiness and a deep ache that he reveals in Romans chapter 7. And so we saw that God was about to get a hold of his life and as I share this with you these next few minutes I want to share with you what that looks like when that happened so this as we've seen this is Paul on the road to Damascus and it wasn't just the road to Damascus it was the road to his destiny and I believe that we all have a destiny that is God has a plan for our lives God has a plan that many of us have an intuitive sense that we're on this planet for a reason. Our life is not just to wake up in the morning, drink coffee, have morning tea, drink more coffee, and you know, eat, drink, be merry, do a day's work, and that you know, and maybe find someone to marry, and have children, and build a home, and work my life, and retire, and buy a boat, and some waders, and some fly fishing gear, and 
That'll be all the superannuation gone and as if that's the good life. That's not what we're on the planet for. And please don't think I'm against any of that because I'm not. I'm just saying that should not be the focus of our lives. It's a part of what many people think makes up the good life. I think it might just be the byproduct of the good life. It's not actually what makes the good life. So, Paul on the road to Damascus was his road to destiny. And we have seen that his utter commitment. So here he is describing himself having this incredible emptiness. This what I call desperate emptiness. And yet all the while he was presenting himself as someone who had it all together. And we see that in the height of his religious zeal, he set about to kill anybody who disagreed with him. That's, you've got to tell me, that's, that's zeal, that's commitment, that's passion. If you believe so much what you believe, you're prepared to kill for it. And he was. And so Saul's religious zeal and commitment to Judaism led him to martyr. Or the word that is used in Acts is execute Christians. So we read in Acts chapter 7 and verse 58, so if you come sort of down to the end, Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church, has given his defence of Christianity. He's given a powerful defence. And I think this would have put question marks. And question marks are in the shape of a hook, aren't they? Notice how many times when Jesus was accused of something or someone said something to him, he responded not with an answer or a rebuttal or whatever. He responded with a question. And a question has this ability to stay and linger and just be what we might call a stone in your shoe. And here's Stephen, I reckon, would have raised some deep questions for Paul. And I think we get a clue into this. Paul gives a clue later on in Acts 26 when he retells what was going on in him while this was happening. But it says, They cast him out of the city and stoned him, stoned Stephen, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So uh, Saul is the Hebrew name for the person we're looking at. His name, uh, Paul. Paul is his Greek name. So it says in, in verse 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, now this is, I think, probably one of the, even though this is not a, Stephen's not asking the question, but I reckon this would have raised a huge question for Paul, Saul, the one who became Paul. Because here he is stoning this man to death. How does a normal person respond to someone who's hurting them, who is committing a heinous act of injustice? How would you respond? Well, we don't have to look too far. Probably just watch the 6 o'clock news tonight or tomorrow night. And you'll see people retaliating in like anger. Evil for evil. Eye for an eye. But notice Stephen's response. Here he is being stoned. And please don't think stones are like little bits of blue metal. These are like baseball-sized rocks. And they killed. This is a painful way to die. And here's Stephen being battered with these things. And it says, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he goes on and he says this in verse 60 of Acts chapter 7. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. And this would have, I reckon, jolted Saul of Tarsus when he heard this. Because he was the administrator of this execution. It says, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord do not hold this sin against them. 
And when he had said this, and this is a beautiful biblical expression, he fell asleep. He fell asleep. And that's a powerful expression of what Christ has now done to death. (laughs) He's made it no more than sleep to the Christian. And so I reckon this would have jolted Saul. We read in Acts chapter 1, and I want to read through quite a bit here in Acts, and then I'll make some comment about it. But I want to put the text here first. So please, just concentrate as we read through these verses. Verse 1, And Saul approved of his, there's that word, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Oh, who was leading that? Well, it was, as we'll read, it was Saul. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 2, devout men carried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Verse 3, but Saul was ravaging, it says, but Saul was ravaging and still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples, the disciples of the Lord, and went to the high priest. Verse 2, and so Saul asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, interesting how Christianity was originally called, Not Christianity. That doesn't happen until uh, Acts 13. Initially, Christians were called those who were of the way, uh, reminiscent of Jesus saying that he was the way. And it says, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here's what I, I I just do want to pause and comment about this. The more convicted, that is a sense of guiltiness, the, 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 the guiltier Saul became, the more aggressive he felt to retaliate and act out in, in violence and negativity toward others. And so it's, it's oftentimes that when we're sharing the gospel with people, when we're sharing the good news of Jesus, when even our life is, is a witness that stands in contrast to what most people are familiar with, it's often interesting how often it makes them angry. I heard the story of a pro golfer who had a request from Billy Graham if he would play around 18 holes with Billy Graham. And he thought, oh, yeah, I'll play Billy Graham. Billy Graham, even then, was quite famous. And Billy Graham, the great evangelist, turned up with his clubs. And, and the other, there were some other pro golfers there that, that wished them well as they went out and played their round of golf. And as they went out uh, and played, the, the other pros were waiting in the club room. And eventually, after the 18 holes, the, the pro golfer came back in. Billy was sort of talking with some other people. and and, and uh, was identified. And, but the golfer came back in and, and came into the club room and some of the pros were there and he threw his bag down on the ground. I opened his locker, put his jack in his locker and slammed his locker. And the other golfer was going, what happened? Oh, never doing that again. They said, oh, did he give you a really hard time? Did he? Absolutely. Did he let up with his preaching? No. Did he make you feel guilty? Absolutely. I'm never doing that again. What did he say? Nothing. (laughs) Conviction. Doesn't take much. Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Verse 4. And falling. To the ground he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Oh, by the way, I should just recap on that one. This is told in Acts chapter 26, verse 14, this way. When Paul retells this story, he says this, And when we had all fallen to the ground, so those who were travelling with him fell to the ground as well, he says in Acts 26. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, so we've got a little bit more detail here, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, this is odd, particularly if you don't know what a goad is. A goad is a long stick with a barb on it, like a hook. And bullock drivers would use it to drive the the bullocks. And if they didn't go where they want, they got a fair whacking. And Christ is saying, I've been leading you and guiding you in a certain direction and you are fighting against it, so I've got to whack you harder. And we read in this episode... And please, I don't want you to get the impression that Christ literally was whacking Saul. It's that pressure that that was happening in his life. But whatever happened, as Saul experiences this bright light, he falls off his horse onto the ground. He got knocked off his horse. And so we go on and we read in verse 5, And he said, Who are you, Lord? <laughs> Which I just find intriguing. Now that he straight away, like, Lord. <laughs> and he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And I find that intriguing. Because who had Paul been persecuting? Christians. Can you see how personally Jesus took this? Can you see how Christ feels with his people you're persecuting me if we today can get just a glimpse of how much Christ feels about his church I don't mean the building I mean the person on your left and your right the person in front of you and behind you if you realize the deep commitment that Christ sees that we have with each other I reckon it would change your world that when we use expressions like brother If we could get that, I reckon that would rock your world. Christ says, you've been persecuting me. Verse 6. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. How's he going to do it? He's blinded now. Well, it says, verse 7. And the men who were travelling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. But Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now in a really good movie, there's a meanwhile. While this was happening, meanwhile, this was happening. And here's the meanwhile, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am. Interesting, he only had to say it once. God's people who are attuned and ready to hear God don't need to be told twice. Ananias, yes Lord. Saul gets knocked off his horse. Saul, Saul! (laughs) Anyway, here I am Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. 
For behold, he is praying. I do find this intriguing, and I'm tempted to share my intriguingness isationizings with you at the moment but I'm just going to move on to verse 12 but it says and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight (laughs) wow and it says verse 13 but Ananias answered Lord I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. There's that destiny. Hear that destiny. Christ had a destiny for Saul and I believe he has a destiny for you. There are some young people here who God has called not to live ordinary lives. You have a destiny and as you'll see in a moment, The Spirit of God will burn something in you even as this is being shared because you will be able to look back on your past. You'll be able to go, oh, I was being prepared. I was being prepared. That was prepared. I didn't think that was, but now I can see that it was. And if you can't see it now, you will see it as you continue to yield to God. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him... Oh boy, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul. And we just read that as, oh, that's a nice flowery religious language. This is a Christian talking to a persecutor of Christians who not four days ago, was killing Christians for no other reason than the fact that they were Christians and he calls him brother. And if you do a study of that word in the book of Acts, you'll see that word is not used lightly. This is a big deal. Brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Paul's had an encounter with Christ, he's become a Christian, he's still blind, receive your sight and receive the Holy Spirit, second experience. Maybe you're here and you've received the gift of salvation, which is a work of the Holy Spirit and now maybe you realise there's the person of the Holy Spirit that you can have an experience with, a second experience. Verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Presumably he was baptised in the Holy Spirit. The evidence of being baptised in the Holy Spirit, it seems in the New Testament, is that something happens to you. (laughs) Not just, oh, what was that? I think there was butterflies down my spine. Oh no, someone just put a block of ice down there. No, no, it's an actual experience where it says you begin to speak in tongues, prophesy, hear things, see things, dream visions and so on. Something happened to Paul, Saul, after he'd already given his life to Christ. A work of the Spirit, now another work of the Spirit and he was baptised. What would it take for a very, very, very proud man 
to be publicly baptised in a bath which would have been enough for, if you've ever been over that part of the world, a small bath, you could easily get 20 people in. And here he is, probably Christians gathered around him, the Christians of Damascus, watching the one who had come to kill them say, I now give my life to Jesus Christ as my Lord. And he was baptised down into the water and up as a picture of being buried with Christ and raised with Christ. What would it take for a proud, proud, proud man to be prepared to do that? Probably an encounter with Jesus. And that's exactly what had happened. Verse 19. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And what do you think was happening? I think he was a sponge. I think he was asking so many questions. He would have wanted, did you see him? Did you see Jesus? Because he never saw him in the flesh, he tells us in um, 1 Corinthians 15. But he had seen him. Perhaps even more real than in the flesh, he'd seen him. And I think he was just soaking up as much information. I reckon these Jewish Christians would have been feeding him the Old Testament showing, look, Isaiah talked about him. Isaiah prophesied about him. Moses prophesied about him. Ezekiel prophesied about him. Jeremiah prophesied about him. Here he is. Now you can see it. Those scales that have fallen from your eyes, they're not just physical. They're spiritual. They'll help you to see this. And he did. And it goes on. And it says, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues <laughs> saying wouldn't you love to have been there this will be interesting Paul's going to the synagogue let's have a look at this this will go down well we'll see that maybe it did and it didn't and it says where he went into the synagogue and he said saying Jesus he is the son of God proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue verse 21 and all who heard him were amazed and said hang on a minute isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name, Jesus? And has he not come here for, the, for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength. The more he got criticised, the more he got shouted down, the more he got mocked, the louder he got. <laughs> it's interesting, his arrogance wasn't quite fully baptized yet it's an amazing thing that when someone gets saved it's warts and all and here we are and it says and Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ and here's my question as we now see this man who's had an amazing transformation when did God begin this process of converting Saul anyone want to offer an idea Jerry, when Saul was first born, anyone want to offer another idea? Because I think that's pretty good. Is that what you were going to say, Annie? Before he was born. Oh, see, trump card, there it is. <laughs> and you think, Paul actually refers to this, of being predestined. In, in Ephesians 1, he talks about... He talks about this, that God had set him up and you think, why did God take so long? And you think, 
you know, and, and I'm thinking, when Jesus knocked him off his horse on the road to Damascus, why didn't Jesus just preach to him? Why didn't Jesus just show him all those Old Testament scriptures? Why didn't Jesus do that? But here is a proud, proud man. And what, what, what do proud, proud, proud people really don't like? Being shown that you don't know anything and someone else does. Being shown that you're helpless and there are other people who can actually help you. And I think God set up Saul to receive this humbling. So Saul's preparation began well before Damascus. Well before. And if you think being prepared by the chief professor of religious law in Jerusalem, Gamaliel, all that was a part of his preparation. All of it. Being, learning how to make tents, part of his preparation. And I think here's the truth that we need to see in this story of Saul's conversion. Is that God's preparation for conversion of anyone to Christ is often a process that's one step at a time. And sometimes we wish God would hurry up, don't we? I do. Oh, there are people I'm praying for. And God, I just have to stand back and worship him. Because God uses things that surprise me at times um, you, you may share your story in a compelling way with someone and hope that they go that's where I'm at too I need that and then someone may come along who doesn't have half as good a story as you who doesn't share it as well as you they don't know where half the scriptures are they share something that's pretty lame that's a pride statement, by the way. And, and your friend gives their life to Christ. Because it's not about, really about us, it's about what the Holy Spirit is doing in someone's life, isn't it? And God uses us as instruments and who knows how he's going to use us. But it's often one step at a time, one step at a time. Each of those steps to Damascus was Paul getting closer and closer to another step in his destiny. So... Here's the other thing. Remember, Ananias is told, tell Paul, tell Saul, um, this is what you're going to suffer now. Now that you're a Christian, the, your, your suffering is going to begin. Ah, oh, wow. How, 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 how does that sound for a gospel message? Um, you know, what, what if I give the appeal in a moment, an appeal to people? I don't mean literally, I want to appeal. I want, that's what preaching is. It's an appeal where I, I plead with you, please give your life to Christ. Because, because when you do, oh by the way, when you do, um, it's going to cost you a lot. You, you're going to suffer a lot. You're going to experience all kinds of things that you're not going to like. Now who's in? <laughs> Thank you to those that put their hand up to encourage me. <laughs> because here's, here's what we see also is that is that, that, that came at a, a great cost. And, and we also see that his conversion wasn't a done, finished deal at Damascus. I've kind of hinted at the fact that there was, there was the arrogant Paul, <laughs> now the arrogant Christian Paul, <laughs> You ever seen an arrogant person come to Christ and they're still arrogant? Is there any arrogant people here who are still arrogant? <laughs> because here's the good news. It doesn't always just change. 
Well, I thought, oh, and I've had people, we've baptised people and they've come up and maybe they've had addictions, smoking addictions, sometimes drug addictions, sometimes alcohol addictions, and they come up out of the water and they go, oh man, I could use a cigarette. <laughs> and they thought it all just break off. And you discover that conversion includes transformation over time. And we're going to see this. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but we see that Paul actually had a lot of issues. <laughs> I find it intriguing that there's no, Paul does not mention anything to do with his dad. I, I, really, I find it really, really curious. He's got a lot of opportunity to talk to his dad. He, he talks to Timothy as my son. And he could talk to him like this, Timothy, my son. You know, when my dad was training, no. Nah. Not a mention of his dad. Here's a guy who, who may have had a very disconnected relationship with his dad. Now, I'm not trying to do psych on this guy, but if I was, that's where it would go. Because then I would say, he, that would explain his typical dadlessness personality. And if you've ever seen a dadlessness personality type, you'll see they're often very angry or depressed. It's a fine line, angry, depressed, really angry really depressed because we're created we are created to have the influence of a dad that's all we have time for tonight but you can order the full-length version of this presentation on cd audio or premium download by going to findingtruthmatters.org and selecting paul part two from our online store as we've heard tonight saul's conversion began a transformation that would continue for his lifetime we also, when we meet Jesus, are transformed, but we certainly don't become perfect in that moment. Our transformation continues throughout our lifetime. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.